This episode is sponsored by Code Health. Code connects healthcare providers to the largest community of medical coding professionals in the country with over 4,600 domestic certified coders. As a single stop for all coding needs, Code's on-demand model has solved for daily staffing challenges and coding inefficiencies by allowing providers to access the right coder at the right time while gaining insights to better manage their coding operations. To learn more about Code, visit CodeHealth.com, that's K-O-D-E Health.com, or email Code directly at partnerships at CodeHealth.com. Hello, and welcome to Voices in Healthcare Finance. I'm Erica Grotto. In today's episode, HFMA President and CEO Joe Pfeiffer interviews Ben Carter, Chief Operating Officer at Trinity Health, as part of his series of chats with top industry leaders. Enjoy the conversation. Well, I'm thrilled today to have our guest, Ben Carter, the Executive Vice President, Chief Financial Officer and Treasurer of Trinity Health in Michigan. Ben's been involved across the system with finance, treasury, risk management, revenue excellence, and payer strategies. So his experience on so much of what we talk about in HFMA is, is comprehensive, to say the least. He's also very involved with community endeavors. He served on the boards of Care Tech Solutions Incorporated, DMC Care Express, uh, and the Invest Michigan Advisory Board, Boys Hope Girls Hope of Detroit, and recently was appointed as co-chair of Governor Rick Snyder's task force on the responsible retirement reform for local government. So he's a busy guy, and I'm just grateful that he is going to spend some time today. Just on a personal note, Ben's a good friend of mine. I've known him for over 20 years, I think, Ben. And I remember the first time I, maybe not the first time I met you, but when I re- we really got to know each other, we were on a panel at the Michigan Association of CPAs, and I remember you were like giving me grief when I was on stage. I'm thinking, who's this guy giving me grief in this panel? And here we are 20 plus years later, good friends and still giving each other grief. <laughs> so welcome to the podcast, Ben. Hey, Joe. Thanks a lot. Pleasure to be with you. And it's such a pleasure to give you grief whenever I can. <laughs> what I can always appreciate is I'll get it back. So yeah. that's what makes it even more fun. Well, like I tell people, the debits always equal the credits, don't they? Always. Yeah. Hey, Ben, I want to start with one piece of HFMA business before we jump into your role and you know other industry issues. Trinity, and, and you led the charge on this, Trinity was the first enterprise solution client of ours, uh, you know, signing up for an organizational membership, which was about two years ago. And you really worked with us to figure out how do we go about doing this? So if you could just start with telling us why you thought this was a good model for Trinity and then maybe what benefits you've seen or how that's played out for you over the last couple of years. Joe, the enterprise solution and our partnership with HFMA has been fantastic. I would say exceeding my wildest expectations. And kind of going back, I remember sitting in a conference room with you and your team and my team, and we kind of talked about conceptually, how do we want this to work? And, you know, I voice that I always viewed HFMA as kind of the place for all of our finance colleagues, whether you were in budget and accounting, in a revenue cycle, wherever it was across the organization, HFMA was the place to go for continuing education, for professional development and for certification as well. And so every year we kept running into budget constraints and how do you get people involved? And it was really kind of hit and miss. So 
the enterprise solution really allowed us to kind of create a platform for all of our finance colleagues so that they could access HFMA education, educational courses online or otherwise, and really, you know, study at home or study at work or, or access through a number of different vehicles without having to worry about the cost every time and really allow them to grow and develop as professionals. And it has been great. And just to quote a couple of numbers, we have 1,200 HFMA members in Trinity. We had 120 before the Enterprise Solution. We have 100 colleagues who have gained certification or in the process of getting their certification, and 75 more colleagues who've registered recently um, for their certification. It's really been really everything that we had hoped for and more. And we continue to advertise and promote. But, you know, one of the other things is we have groups of, of colleagues from around the country that will get on one of the online educational courses together and then talk about it afterwards. So it's been great in helping to continue to develop the community of financial executives and financial professionals in our organization. So, Joe, it, it's really been great. That's been, I, yeah. I, I would really, you know, if I'm your walking billboard for this or digital advertising, I, I'm happy to do that because it's been fantastic. I can tell you that that means a lot to me. I wasn't sure what your answer would be. And so I'm grateful for that, not only for its merits, you know, just on its surface, but what people don't know, if you don't know Ben Carter, you don't know that he, Ben is about as straight a shooter as there is in our business. And I love that about him. And if he had a criticism about us, then I would know about it. And so those words mean a lot just because of that. So thank you. Yeah. So let's jump into your job as a CFO. I, you've, you've been doing it a long time. You know, we rattle off a whole list of responsibilities in the beginning, but I want to talk about to what extent your day-to-day job as a CFO has changed in the last few years, whether it's areas that report to you or things that you're responsible for, or maybe even just the conversations that you're in. Yeah, you know, I think that the role of the CFO uh, continues to evolve rapidly in, in healthcare, particularly on the, on the provider side. In addition to the things that you mentioned at the beginning that I'm responsible for, I'm also accountable for a number of our, what we call ministries, our regional ministries operationally. So they report to me as well. So I have Chicago, I have New York, I have New England. So I've taken on more operational responsibility. And I see that more and more where CFOs are expected to really have that, you know, operational savvy and to be able to lead operations as well as to lead a number of the finance functions. Recently, under our new CEO, information technology, innovation, and our health plans are also accountable to me as well. And so there's an expectation that, you know, continue to help guide the organization relative to how information technology is taking on a bigger and bigger role in our organization and innovation at the same time. So how we continue to encourage the growth and development of technology and innovation and organization as healthcare continues to change pretty quickly and dramatically. That's really interesting. So not only a, a wide variety of things, but part of what struck me about your answer is that not just that you have operations responsibilities, but you have operations responsibilities in several different geographic regions, which must be kind of interesting. I mean, the, the 
The culture in Chicago is different from the culture in Michigan, which is different from the culture in New York, both societal and then within healthcare. There's different healthcare models. So talk a little bit about how do you manage with that geographic diversity that you're responsible for. Well, one thing for sure is you got to like to travel. <laughs> That's true. So, yeah. yeah. So, you know, getting on an airplane and, and, and going out to those ministries becomes really critical. And like you say, the, you know, the culture, uh, the demographics, the dynamics are, are different in, in every geography. And, you know, I personally believe you have to be connected into it in, in, in order to lead effectively. So, you know, that's a that's a big part of it. We've got strong leaders in each of those markets. And, you know, I'm happy to say that I've been, you know, at the point for for recruiting leadership into each of those markets and and then helping them to to grow and develop and and grow teams uh, underneath them as well that can really move those ministries and in meeting the organizational objectives that we have, whether it's quality, patient satisfaction, community health and well-being, financial and, and, and so forth. The fascinating part of it is, like you say, every region is different. Every state is different. The rules are different in every state. The, the payer dynamics are different in every state. The regulatory environment is different in every state. And so it definitely uh, keeps you full of energy and motivated coming to work every day. And honestly, Joe, I don't think there's a day that goes by where, you know, I don't get the phone call in the morning that this is going on, that's going on, a survey is going on, this has happened, that's happened. And I get energized by that. You know, the adrenaline flows, all juices are flowing, the mojo's going. It's exciting. It, I kind of liken it to being an air traffic controller at times, and you're managing a lot of moving parts. And the whole point is to make sure that everything goes well and everybody lands safely. I should have included that in the intro because even that metaphor is uh, purposeful because you're a pilot, right? I am. Indeed. There's so many parallels between aviation and healthcare that, you know, I kind of flip-flop between them all the time. One reinforces the other. So it's, it's, it's a lot of fun. You know, one part of your answer, you know, when you talk about travel and what that what that means is you're traveling to go meet with folks, meet with people. And and you, you know, I suppose you could probably rationalize doing your job from your offices in Southeast Michigan, but you're getting on planes and going to see folks. What that tells me is that you're paying attention to the maybe the soft skill part of our jobs um, in terms of either change management or culture development or just managing people. So can you talk a little bit about how how your role has begun to incorporate those soft skills into what you do? I mean, th those are all things that, like I say sometimes, those were all things that were not on the CPA exam, right? Yeah, no, <laughs> they, 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 they really weren't. And, you know, at times, um, and I'm sure you've watched Shark Tank, and at times I've been uh, likened to Kevin O'Leary, uh, <laughs> Mr. Wonderful. Yep. And, and, you know, even as recently as a couple days ago, we had one of our regional ministries proposing a new project. So it was almost like Shark Tank in, in that regard. You know, so I, I had a very inquisitive, very questioning type of approach to really understanding what they're proposing. And, 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 you know, as I call it, I like to stress test it because if we're going to go with it, we're going to make that investment. We're going to recommend it to our board. I don't want to ever be surprised by questions I get at the board. So I'd like to try to think of all of them before they go to the board. So we've thought of everything and it's kind of bulletproof at the end of the day. And, and so I thought I was being really smart and, you know, really business savvy and so forth. 
And then after the meeting, a couple hours later, I heard that I devastated the team. They were devastated. Oh, no. Uh, uh. Yeah. And it was because I didn't bring that soft skill approach in, into my line of questioning, which was not meant to be mean or demeaning or and so forth. It was really to be inquisitive so that I could understand it better. So, yeah, I, you know, that soft skill, it particularly in the CFO role is, is really critical because, you know, you can either energize or demoralize teams. Part of our job today to be successful is we got to keep energy in the whole organization. So that soft skill focus is really important. And like you say, it wasn't on the CPA exam. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I would even say that when you think about the traditional role of the CFO historically, the CFO was always the guy that sat in the back room, you know, with the green eye shades. <laughs> said and, no to everybody. And, and said no to everybody. <laughs> right. Right. Exactly. It said no to everybody. And I have defined for people when they ask that a big part of my role is, is to really get to how you say yes. How do you get to yes? Absolutely. And uh, that's really that, that soft skill side. And it's, you know, and it's something that we always have to be mindful of. So for me, even that, you know, that experience of a couple of days ago was a reminder that how I ask questions, the tone that I ask, my body language, all those things matter. And it's something that I have to really pay attention to. Yeah, because we're all people and, and people, um, you know, people have emotions and, and you want your team pulling for you, right? I mean, because they're the ones that are doing 99% of the work. And so uh, I think that's a great story, a great example of paying attention to that. You know, and I always just to add on to that, Joe, you know, we have 130,000, we call them colleagues in our organization. And, you know, we're, you know, almost $20 billion of revenue. And people ask me, how do you do that? I mean, that's, that's huge. It How do you huge. do that? Yep. Well, you know what? You do it through people. You do. And, and there's no other way to do other than through people. So to your point, really, really important that our people remain engaged and energized because they, they really are the ones that make the organization what it is. Well, and you have to, you have to change leadership style with changes in society. And it's just like, Professional coaches coach differently than they did, you know, 20 years ago. And same thing with business leaders, that we need to bring our folks along in a different way than we did earlier in our careers. And uh, that's what I'm hearing from you. Yeah, we really are coaches at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. And of course, you know, I'm a Michigan guy, but I really admire Tom Izzo, the Michigan State basketball coach. And during the March Madness last year, he grabbed one of his players and was like, you know, sticking Screaming his finger him, in his, right. yep. you remember that? Oh, there, sure. I'm a Spartan fan. Amount, yep. Yeah. Fair amount of criticism about that. And uh, one of the other players kind of stepped in and said, hey, coach, you got to separate yourself, back off a little bit and so forth. It just kind of reminded me that, you know, the coach has to ultimately get the best out of his or her players and everyone responds to stimuli differently. And some would respond to that approach, you know, and step it up and others would shrink away. As a coach, you really have to understand for the people that you're managing with and through what makes them tick, what motivates them, and then make sure that as a coach that you're touching on the right motivators to get the best of people. Absolutely. You know, and the last part of that story, which is a good one, and again, I'm, I'm a Spartan fan, so I'm pretty tuned into it, but when people were criticizing me, he said, hey, time out, you're looking at a 20-second clip of a you know years long relationship 
And that's not representative. And and he wasn't excusing it, but he was just saying, he, I have a relationship with this guy. And in the moment, he need, he needed to be corrected. And so, but the, the fact is that it is part of a, you know, a year's worth relationship rather than a 20 second, uh, you know, little clip that shows up on SportsCenter. Very important as well. Yeah. So let's shift to a little bit about what's going on in the industry. And I remember asking you um, in a in a meeting once, how many payment model experiments that Trinity was involved with? And at the time, this is a few years ago, but you said, oh, probably around 75. And I remember thinking, my gosh, what a bewildering and, you know, incredible environment that is. Because I suspect a lot of those are either overlap or have conflicting kinds of incentives. So what's the payment model experimentation environment like now for you? And what's your perspective on all this experimentation? You know, I would say we probably still have 75 different type of experimental alternative payment models that are going on. We've kind of put ourselves, you know, as a large national organization at the forefront of, you know, pushing forward towards transformative care, which means moving to value in a not just lip service, but really moving to value. We went big into the bundled payments and we're in the new version of bundled payments, the advanced bundled payments. We got into the next generation ACO. We got into the MSSP Track 3, which is the risk-based Medicare Shared Savings Program. We have a number of across the country, probably two or three in every every one of our ministries, uh, different alternative payment models with commercial payers and, and, and so forth. So we've really pushed the envelope. Now, the interesting thing of all that, Joe, is three, four years ago, you know, as the industry really was pushing towards value, and I think it still is, but we expected that 75% of our revenue would be associated with alternative payment model approaches. And we started around 22%. Um, five years later, we're at 25% of yeah. our revenue tied yeah. to alternative payment models. So yeah, it's like, it's, it's so whole, true. It, it just, it, I mean, it's like, what happened? Right. You know, it just, it's gone really, really slow, slower than we anticipated, although we're still going to push it forward. And we've learned a lot. One of the things that we've learned is without data, without real live data, you can't win at it at all. So you're running a sprint with an arm tied behind your back. You have to have really strong data. You have to have really strong data analytics. You have to have your physicians and your clinically and integrated networks really tied into, you know, how these value-based approaches work. And you have to have a very strong continuum of care or the ability to manage across the continuum of care in order to be able to do them successfully. And I would say the other thing is that the construct of the relationships with whoever the payer is, is really, really critical. And, you know, I'm not going to bash payers, but there are some that really want to rebase you every year and rebasing destroys value-based models because all it's a law of diminishing returns on the provider side and, and ultimately just doesn't work. Well, yeah, sometimes those models look good for a couple of years and then all of a sudden, um, you know, if you rebase, there's, there's only so much more improvement that could be made. Uh, I, I know exactly what you're referring to, but expand on your your discussion about analytics and talk a little bit about how your role is involved in terms of analytics, whether it's these experiments, but then just generally, are you investing in more staff in analytics? How are you organizing them? Just expand on that a little bit. 
I, I would put us in the you know kindergarten stage of analytics still. And when I look at kind of where it's going, particularly when you think about machine learning and artificial intelligence and and so forth. I mean, I think we've only scratched the surface of uh, the power of data and in analytics. But yes, we are investing in analytics heavily. You know, both in terms of clinical analytics, we've actually made a small investment in a uh, clinically driven artificial intelligence company. You know, to to assist with uh, analytics and predictive analytics relative to uh, clinical care. We have several actuaries that are on staff, you know, looking at the the claims analytics and and really assisting the clinically integrated networks and and our providers relative to managing the total costs of care. And, and supporting our care coordinators as well, particularly around next site of care. That's all part of managing the, the total cost of care. So what we found is, as we've kind of looked through the organization, is that we had pockets of analytics going on throughout the whole system, and they were all doing things differently, all arriving at same data, different conclusions, and you know different algorithms and approach and all that. So one of the things that we're doing is we're bringing all of that together so that we're optimizing what we can get today out of the data analytics and, and the conclusions that we draw from it, and then how that gets incorporated in terms of how we manage and also how we deliver clinical care. Well, I think there's two really important things in your answer there. Uh, one is just the humility to accept the fact that you know, you're at a kindergarten stage level uh, you know, perhaps, you know, comparing to analytics that's done in other industries, because uh, I think you're right. I think we in healthcare have a long way to go. And it kind of leads into the second one is, is that as um, you're investing in, in the profession of, of analytics, whether it's through hiring actuaries uh, and other folks, but, but it's a recognition that analytics is more than just studying the spreadsheet a little harder, but, you know, getting predictive and in using it to, you know, turn into management information in a, in a much more sophisticated way. I, sometimes I talk to people about analytics and it feels like a conversation that's not much different than what we've always done as, you know, financial analysis. And it's, it's much deeper than that. So your answers really bore that out. And I, I appreciate that. Yeah, it's not just statistics. No, let's, let's no doubt. Be clear about that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, well, and if if you're going to take any risk at all, you know, any significant, if you're going to start, especially if you're going to get into insurance risk of any type, um, you have to. Uh, it's really wise, I should say. I suppose you don't have to, but to get into the predictive analytics and start to targeting which patients are starting to trend negatively, so you can preclude. Um, healthcare claims, which is such a different way of thinking from where we've always been. But if you're going to be in the risk environment, that's what we need to do. And so, again, that's that's good stuff. The analytics universe is more broad than just what we have inside the health system. No doubt. So when you think about the environmental, you combine it with you know environmental factors that impact health and so forth. When you think about the social determinants of health, food, housing, air, etc., you can even get even better at how the analytics all come together in order to deliver better health. It can get pretty powerful. Absolutely. I saw your old boss the other day, uh, Rick Gilfillan, and he talked about the fact that you guys don't even refer to them as social determinants, but uh, as uh, social influencers of health. And that was a kind of a refreshing way to look at those, but it calls them out for what they are because they don't necessarily determine it, but they certainly influence it. And if you can have the, the impact of changing 
those influencers, that's pretty powerful. Absolutely. When we're treating an illness, if you can avoid the illness altogether, then you don't have to treat it. Asthma is an example, right? You know, understanding air quality and do your members have inhalers so that if we know it's a high ozone day, can we, you know, avoid them having to go to the emergency room and expensive treatment because they didn't have an inhaler. And I mean, that's a simple example, but you know, it's a relevant example. It is absolutely relevant. A couple more wrap up questions. One, because you're talking about how that role of a CFO is changing. If you had to project what the healthcare CFO will, will look like in five or 10 years, what do you see coming? I think the CFO role is more and more becoming operational and strategic at the same time. You know, the expectations of the CFO as they're evolving is to be strategic, to be growth oriented, to be innovative, to be entrepreneurial. However, to also understand that you can't take, as you called it, there's a risk management. You got to be the cautious one as well and the practical one as well because you can't take unwarranted or wild risks with the organization either. So we're expected to do so many different things. And more and more of that is putting the CFO at the eye of that needle. So the CFO has evolved from the accountant and the bean counter and the, and the transactional person, meaning like payroll and count, you know, accounts payable and that type of thing, you know, to really kind of be in, you know, almost like a heading up a, a private equity firm, you know, where you're you're the wise, savvy business strategic, you know, person that's really guiding the organization uh, towards financial success. It's really uh, broadening the overall skills and competency of the CFO, even from what it is today. So, last question: um, If you could say one thing to our members or even the industry at large about what we should do to either improve our industry performance or change the negative rhetoric that we hear so often, what, what would that one thing be? You know, I, I don't know that I could say it's one, but, you know, as, as an industry, we have to move way up on the trust scale. And I kind of view that as doing three things, make it easy, make it transparent, and make it compassionate. I think if we can take those three things and really have our consumers, our, you know, we call them members now, not just patients, but our members, if it's easy, transparent, and compassionate, then we really do become trusted. And I think that as an industry, we have to move up that trust scale. Absolutely. Well, and we've fallen dramatically over the years. And so I, I think you're absolutely right. Well, Ben, I got to tell you, I, I just love your attitude. You know, I came up through the industry through the really the beginning of this massive change era. And, you know, a lot of the change, you know, had a lot of healthcare executives moaning and groaning about the change environment and, you know, all those kinds of things. You know, what I heard from you today is the word energy or energize, I don't know, what, five, six different times. I just love your attitude. I love your spirit. It's really positive And I can see why you're a successful executive. So, Thank you for sharing that with our members, and thanks again for taking so much time with us today. Absolutely, Joe. Uh, My pleasure. Voices in Healthcare Finance is produced by the Healthcare Financial Management Association and written and hosted by me, Erica Grotto. Sound editing is by Linda Chandler. Brad Dennison is our Director of Content Strategy. Our President and CEO is Joe Pfeiffer. Special thanks to Nick Hutt, Mary Mirabelli, and Rick Gundling for their help with this production. 
Finally, we always welcome your feedback and invite you to reach out to us with your questions and comments at podcast at hfma.org.